All right, well, we're going to get right into the word today. And so uh, if you guys didn't notice, I brought the big one. That's like heavy artillery. Normally I go thin line. Uh, But if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're continuing in our series through uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, The series is titled Entrusted. And uh, it really is Paul's letter to his younger brother, his young disciple, his son in faith, uh, Timothy, who's been called to be a kind of leader uh, a, pastor, a temporary pastor to this church in Ephesus. And so uh, we're continuing in Paul's encouragement, exhortation in his letter to Timothy. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're talking about false teachers. We're talking about heresies. We're going to talk about apostasy. And I think that really fits in because uh, over the past couple of weeks or months now, our college group has been going through a series titled The Kingdom of the Cults. And one thing we've been learning is that the world is full of bad theology and false teaching, particularly in the name of Jesus and under this kind of umbrella of general generic Christianity. Many cults today actually began as a result of false teachers who grew up in the church. False teachers who were studying the Bible and they started manipulating the Bible to begin to say what they wanted to say, to use the Bible for their own leverage, for their own preferences, according to their own beliefs. And then they started praying on people in the church. This was especially true of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormon religion. But we also see this progression right, in Christian science, in the International Church of Christ, and a host of other Christian cults. I actually once, I, I remember very keenly um, meeting a missionary in Latin America who was so frustrated. He didn't have very many resources, but he was passionate about reaching villages and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who had never heard the gospel before. So he was very just frontline missionary in Latin America. And he was frustrated because he would go to these people groups, he would introduce them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, only to see two guys in white shirts on bicycles come right behind him, right? Figuratively, Mormon missionaries also bear the name of Jesus and lure these people away from the church, bringing with them more resources, healthcare, education, jobs. And they all think they're following the same Jesus. They all think they're reading the same Bible and worshiping the same God. The word for this is apostasy. Apostasy. Now, apostasy is not when a Christian loses his or her salvation. The Bible is clear that once a person is saved by grace, they are always saved, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? 
that Jesus Christ, he himself promises that no one will snatch his sheep out of his hand. That's the kind of shepherd he is, right? Once we enter into his fold by grace through faith, Jesus will never let us go. He will never let a wolf come into his fold and take his sheep. So what is apostasy? It's not losing your salvation. And what is going on in the church that Paul was writing to? This this church in Ephesus, simply put, apostasy is departing from the faith. And not your faith, it's just the faith, like the umbrella, the general understanding of Christianity. Apostasy is when someone who claims to be a Christian renounces the gospel and falls away. If you guys have ever had any friends you grew up with, maybe in youth group, they used to be super serious about Jesus and just stopped believing and they fell away. It might seem that they lost their salvation, but if they never return to faith in Jesus Christ, they never lost their salvation because they never truly had it. And they experienced apostasy. Jesus knew this was going to happen. He knew that there would be people who were kind of visible, outward members of the church, but who weren't true believers and disciples. And he even warned his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 to 12. This is what Jesus says to his own followers. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And he's talking about after he departs, right? After he returns to his Father in heaven, he says, Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will will grow cold. And just like all of Jesus' prophecies, this one came true. It came true in Paul's day, and it continues to be a reality in our day. For the last 2,000 years, we have been living in the last days, waiting for Jesus to return. But this wait has not been uncontested. Okay? It's not uncontested. Every generation of the church is called to fight the good fight of faith. Every generation of the church is called to hold fast to the true teachings of Scripture. Every generation of the church is called to reject heresy, reject false doctrines and protect and proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We are here, church, because all of the previous generations have been faithful to that. You guys understand that? That's amazing to think of the great lineage of faith that comes down from Jesus and his disciples and all the early missionaries in the early church because they have been faithful and zealous to protect the gospel. We, we are the inheritors of that. And church, there's a whole nother generation coming behind us. And we are entrusted to teach them the true gospel of Jesus Christ and protect the flock in a way that reflects Christ and his ministry. The title of today's message is this, Freedom from Falsehood. And as we study these five verses together, we're going to see three things. Okay? First, the sources of falsehood. Where do they come from? Where does false teaching and heresy come from? Second, we're going to look at the message of falsehood. What do false teachers say? What are the false teachers in Ephesus saying? And what are some common tactics and phrases that false teachers here today in our context use against us? And then thirdly, we're going to look and we're going to see the way to freedom or the way of freedom, okay, away from falsehood. So first, the sources of falsehood. Second, the message of falsehood. And finally, 
the way to freedom. Let's get into our first point today. Uh, Paul writes in verse 1, okay, verse 1, we'll start at the top. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Um, We don't talk about demons and the devil that often. Even if the pastor says Satan, you're like, ooh, pastor, that's a bad word from the pulpit, right? It's just kind of like unconfortable, unnatural, kind of foreign, right? Well, the first source of falsehood that endangers the church is the devil. They are his demons. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screw Tape Letters, he has a wonderful quote on just understanding and thinking about Satan and the devil in the church. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Which are you? Which are you? Are you the disbeliever or are you the they are everywhere and they are out to get me type of person? Do you see that? There are some of us here, there are some of you here that give the devil more than is due. You get into a car accident, right? Something bad happens to you. Your kids get sick or you lose an assignment for work or school. You're like, spiritual warfare. The sa- Satan is out to get me, this car accident. Guys, you guys got to pray for me. I'm being persecuted right now. Or when someone does something wrong, you've all heard the phrase, the devil made me do it, right? The devil made me do it. Truly, some people are obsessed with demonic activity in the world today. I once heard this story. Actually, my friend in a seminary class told me this story. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, he said that um, the professor kind of opened up the class, just straight face, dead serious. He asked the class, do you know where the most demonic activity takes place in America? And the class was silent. They're like, I don't know. How do we answer that? Right? They were totally just bewitched, right? And then one student just shoots his hand up with a whole lot of confidence. And he calls him, and he's like, what's the answer? And he says, at the entrance of our malls. You know what the seminary professor said? This is even crazier, right? You're like, what? Seminary professor said, exactly. And then moved on with his lecture. <laughs> right? No explanation. Right? My friend was like, aren't you going to explain? But, but like, it was so confusing that no one had the follow-up. And I was like, what? Right? I still don't know what he's talking about. Like the entrance of malls, like demons. But ladies, the next time you come home with a designer bag, just tell your husbands, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. <laughs> Persecution, spiritual warfare. I couldn't stop myself. Now, I don't think that most of us are really that obsessed with demons. Okay? I don't think we're looking around, I can see one there, see one there, like duck and cover. Um, we're probably in the category of disbelieving their existence. But some, as someone once said, the, devil is, the devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist. Right? And if we disbelieve his work, if we disbelieve his existence, then we will fall prey to his temptations and his falsehood. Church, the devil does exist. And Paul reminds us today that he is the primary source of the false teaching and heresy 
and apostasy in the church. This is why Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, It's that important. Spiritual warfare is real. Church, you and I need to be delivered from the work, right? from the temptations of the devil. He is the first source of falsehood. He is the first foe in the church. The second source of falsehood is from false teachers themselves. Not only have these false teachers been deceived by the devil, but in verse 2, Paul describes these false teachers even more. He writes that they are insincere liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, that's, that's his description. These false teachers are hypocrites, and they have seared consciences. The Greek word for, uh, that Paul uses for uh, seared, it's... Um, Calstariazo, right? Sounds like a Spanish, uh, Italian word, right? Uh, yeah, calstariazo. And from it, we get the word cauterize. You guys know what cauterize means. Um, when you cauterize flesh, you're burning it. You're burning it to stop the bleeding. You're burning it to stop the pain. And so when you cauterize a wound, it numbs the flesh around it. Now think about this. Think about what it means to cauterize your soul. What does it mean to sear your heart? You see, this is what happens to us when we live in hypocrisy. When we believe in lies, uh, believe in lies, and we live according to those lies. Church, friends, the more you and I live in sin, the more desensitized we become to it. Isn't that true? Right? The more we practice sin and worldliness, and waywardness and rebellion, the more comfortable and normal it becomes, right? we no longer feel remorse. We no longer repent. We no longer sense the fear of God. We're not even sorry when we're committing those types of sins. Have you experienced the searing of your own heart? Is your heart, is your soul cauterized to the presence of God, to the word of God? Perhaps you've done this with money. I think for many of us, if you grew up in the church and you got your first job, you were super grateful. And you told yourself, this is really like all God. This is God's money. I'm gonna be a good steward over all of this, right? And then you start getting a little older and expenses start piling up. Life gets so much pricier. And so you stop giving, you stop tithing because, hey, you have credit cards to pay, credit cards to pay off. You have school loans. You, you fall behind in some debt. And you just say, God understands. And guys, there is grace. Okay, We don't want to be legalists about money. But the scary thing is, the more you live as if all of your money is all of your money, you get used to it. And the idea of stewardship, the ideas of tithing and generosity and sacrificial giving, it's just Christian rhetoric. And it just bounces off of our hearts bounces off of our skulls with no second thought, with no remorse, with no care, and with no concern. Has this happened to you? Or perhaps you're in a relationship, and you start off and you say, I know, but we want to be a Christ-centered couple. We want to be pure. We want to protect each other. And then suddenly, the boundaries start loosening. 
and you experience more and more physical intimacy. And in the beginning, you feel guilty. You come to church and you repent. You try not to do that again and again and again, but the more you keep living and fueling and, 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 and feeding that sin, the more normal it becomes. So that's what you do on Friday night or Saturday night. That's what you do when you have intimate, private moments with each other. What else would you do? We cauterize our hearts. We cauterize our souls, church, as we start to normalize sin in our lives. And there's so many ways we do this. I'm sure as you think about your own lives and your own hearts, you can identify them. Well, this is what the false teachers have done. When it comes to the word of God and the truth of God and the people of God, they have been living according to a lie. They've been so used to their own hypocrisy that they're no longer sorry for it. They're not even aware of it half the time. They have seared their hearts to the truth of God and that sin no longer phases them. So they continue in that lie and they continue to deceive others and they profit over it. This is why Paul repeatedly talks about keeping our conscience clear. You see, a seared conscience is a sure-fired way to apostasy, okay? Uh, he says, he talks about clear and clean hearts and consciences already. He's already talked about that three times in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 5, in his introduction, he tells Timothy, this is why I'm writing you this letter. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. He's saying, Timothy, that's what we want to see in you. That's what we want to see in the church. And then just a couple verses later, verses 18 to 19, wage the good warfare, right? Fight the good fight of faith, holding faith and a good conscience. Again, exhortation. And finally, in 1 Timothy 3, 9, Pastor DC just preached about this last week. When he talks about deacons, what's a qualification for a deacon to hold this office they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Church, our hearts must not be seared. Our hearts must not be numb and deaf to God. God wants pure hearts, clean consciences. And church, your conscience, it's not this childlike, childish feeling in your heart. You know, when's the last time we kind of talked about consciences, right? Uh, in the church or in an adult conversation. That's kind of something that's very grade school and adolescent. But it's not childish at all, friends. Your conscience is a precious means by which God convicts us of our sin and he keeps us abiding in his truth. Okay? God uses your conscience, right? God uses your heart to keep you abiding in his truth to convict you of your sin, it is a sign of spiritual maturity to have a tender conscience. It really is. It is a sign of spiritual maturity to have a good conscience that regularly directs you to Jesus and away from sin and away from this world. Let's continue to our second point, which is the, fault, the message of falsehood, okay? So first, uh, the sources of falsehood, the false teachers, we have the devil and his demons, and then these hypocritical, seared false teachers. The second point, what is the message? What's the message that's being used to kind of uh, corrupt the church, right, and stumble believers, or stumble uh, members? Paul not only describes the false teachers in Ephesus, he also addresses their teaching. And in verse 3, he tells us that they are forbidding marriage 
and teaching abstinence from foods. These are two specific things that these false teachers in Ephesus are convicting or like kind of persuading people to practice. Now, we aren't sure which foods are being prohibited, but scholars believe it's probably just the Jewish, Jewish dietary laws. Okay? So the Jews had in the Old Testament laws prohibiting foods such as pork, shellfish, and meats with blood still in it. Okay? Call it the lifeblood, still in the meat. You're not supposed to eat that. But uh, guys, if medi- eating a medium rare steak is wrong, I don't want to be right. right? I don't want to be right. Okay? Uh, but that was no go. Right? They had to eat well-done steak, well-done steak all the way through. Um, I don't even want that. Okay, so that was being prohibited, probably, right? Now, the biblical teaching is that we are free to eat and we are free to abstain. We are free to marry and free to remain single, okay? The gospel truly sets us free. But the false teachers in Ephesus, they were teaching that the way to salvation The way to a greater righteousness, the way to true holiness and discipleship was through celibacy and abstaining from these foods. And this goes entirely against the gospel of grace. Church, we're not saved on the basis of your marital status or the lack thereof. You're not righteous and you're not accepted by God based on your diet. We are saved on the the work of Christ and Christ alone. Friends, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And so if anyone comes and says, the only way for you to be a true disciple, the only way for you to be truly righteous, the only way for you to truly be accepted in the kingdom is you have to do this and this and that and create these additional laws, you go to them and say, that's false. That's heresy. That's untrue. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, let me be clear, okay? My rant and my message in the Bible is not, then, in response to these heretics, anti-celibacy or anti-vegan. If we were teaching that, we'd be just as guilty as the legalist. Does that make sense? If someone says, oh, you can't get married, and the pastor says, no, you have to get married, both guys are like legalistic, right? If someone's like, oh, you can't eat pork, and he's like, no, no, you have to eat pork to be a true Christian, then, like, everybody's insane, right? That, that's not going to work, Okay. That both reflects legalism, which is the attempt to merit the favor of God through our works. But also because denying marriage okay, and food goes directly against, oh, sorry. So, yeah, I just want to be very clear about that. Okay? We are free to eat and free not to eat. Okay? We accept carnivores and vegans alike. Okay? You are free to marry and you are free not to marry. Okay? Uh, that's the message of Scripture. But if anyone is going to go against marriage, okay, that's unbiblical. Why? Because marriage was God's idea. Okay? Marriage was God's idea. God commanded Adam and Eve right, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so if someone says, oh, sex is wrong, sex is dirty, sex is lustful, sex is indulgent, or even if, if they're, oh, you can only have sex to have kids or whatever it might be, that's unbiblical. Sex was God's idea. Yes, it was designed within the context and covenant of marriage. But if someone is to deny that, they're to deny the design and work of God. This is called the creation mandate. God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And after the flood, he said the same thing to Noah. You guys get busy. Be fruitful, (laughs) multiply, and fill the earth. That's the creation mandate. Similarly, when Peter was struggling, because Peter was a Jew who became a disciple and a Christian, 
Peter was struggling with breaking the Jewish dietary laws. He's like, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Okay? God, told, God comes to him and he says in Acts, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. What God has made clean, do not call common. So he said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter had bacon. And it was good. Right? <laughs> On the eighth day or whatever. Now let's step back from food and marriage because I don't think that's like the main things that are going on in our church and the heresies today. Let's look at the general nature of false teaching. What makes it so believable? See, we laugh at this. We're like, that's just ridiculous. Why would anyone be misled by such teachings? What makes false teaching believable? Why do people fall away into apostasy? The answer is this. Because these falsehoods are often veiled in half-truths, okay? They are veiled and disguised in half-truths. You get a bunch of former Jews who have become Christians, and you say, oh, no, 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 these guys got it wrong. You are supposed to fulfill the dietary laws. Then something clicks, and they say, maybe we are supposed to. They say, hey, you guys know Moses? Moses didn't eat pork. King David didn't eat shellfish. Solomon didn't eat rare meat. Maybe you shouldn't either. And something clicks. It's a half-truth, right? Something clicks. Philip Ryken, great theologian, he writes, the most dangerous heresies often sound like authentic Christianity. Okay? The most dangerous heresies often sound like authentic Christianity. And this is why the Christian must practice discernment and wisdom. Jehovah's Witnesses, they affirm that there is one God. I mean, that is their big thing, one God. And you know what we say? Yes, there is one God. But they deny that he exists in three persons. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity, half-truth. Roman Catholics, they stress the importance of good works and personal piety. And that is true. God created us for good works. We are his craftsmanship, right? There is a great purpose for good works in the Christian life. But the Catholics lose the gospel of grace, half-truth. The International Church of Christ, if you do any ministry around a, uh, a university, you will probably run into them. They teach the necessity of baptism. And it's true. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, should you be baptized? Yes. Right? But they lose the universality of the church because they say you have to be baptized in our church. Right? And if you're not baptized in an ICC church, your baptism is illegitimate. And then I say, your church is illegitimate. Right? Right? So here, here's just a helpful thing, guys. I hope, none of, I hope you all stay all nations for life, right? But if you ever are looking for another church or considering a different ministry, okay, here's a great marker of a cult. One mark of a cult is the inability to do multi-layered thinking. Okay? Multi-layered thinking. For cult members, oftentimes, they cannot comprehend nuance or distinctions. Everything is linear. Everything is black and white. Either there is one God or three gods, but one God and three persons, that doesn't make any sense, or we're going to be Jehovah's Witnesses. Either you are saved by grace or saved by works, but to say works are, are necessary, but like, how does that even work? Right? They don't understand multi-layered thinking. They cannot understand how sex can be a good thing inside of marriage, but a sinful thing outside of marriage, okay? Which, to married people, makes perfect sense, right? 
They can't understand how eating pork could be considered wrong for Moses, but right for Peter. Either God is one or he's three. Either Jesus is God or man, right? Or maybe 50-50, God and man. But how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? They cannot understand that, so they create heresies around their limited linear thinking. But to think biblically requires multi-layered thinking. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean it's unclear. It does mean there are paradoxes. It does mean sometimes it takes longer to explain why the kingdom of God is already here but not yet here. You're like, what? It is. The kingdom of Jesus is already but not yet. It's come and it's coming. But I need to explain that because just on a phrase alone, it seems like it doesn't make sense. But mark of a cult, the inability to do multi-layered thinking. Another mark of a cult is an unbiblical measure of control exerted over its followers. John Calvin, when he was writing his commentary on 1 Timothy, he said the greatest, the, the, the greatest problem with these false teachers is they were trying to take a freedom, freedom to marry or not marry, freedom to eat or not eat, and cr- make it a law. And that was pernicious. Right? The, the reformers like, like hardcore words like that. It was pernicious to take a freedom that God has given us and try to create a law out of it. Okay? But that's what these cults do. They want an unwarranted, unbiblical measure of control over your life, over your freedom. Areas of, areas of liberty turn into obligations. And conforming to the culture of that cult is treated with the same regard as obeying the law of God. I'm going to give you guys an example. Uh, I'm not trying to call SDAs a cult. Verdict is still out, 50-50 on them. But SDAs, Seventh-day Adventists, will say, oh, no, no, no. We don't hold to the Old Testament dietary laws. You are free to eat. But you ask any faithful, devout Seventh-day Adventist, they do not eat pork. Right? Why? Because it comes from this culture of conforming. They're not high on makeup, no piercings, no tattoos. They say, oh, it's not the law, but none of us do it. And there's this conforming to a culture where there's no variance, there's no freedom, there's no latitude when it comes to the, yeah, the freedoms that God has given us. And it's all conforming into a culture. There's another church national movement that was considered a cult, a very very controversial in the 80s and the 90s. What they would always do is they wanted you to date and marry inside the church. They wanted you to date and marry inside the church. They didn't want you to marry someone outside the church because then you might end up leaving, right? And so if you couldn't find someone inside the church to date and marry, you know what they would do? They would set you up. Be like, oh yeah, there's one at the LA chapter you can start dating. Oh, there's somebody at our San Diego church. Can we hook you guys up? But they wanted you to stay in network, friends. We have All Nations Bakersfield, All Nations Inland. We're not going to do that, right? (laughs) Date according to just God's sovereign will in your life. I'm not playing matchmaker for you guys, okay? So that's the second huge just indicator, right? An unwarranted, unbiblical measure of control exerted over your freedoms, okay? Um, But that was going on in Ephesus. It goes on today in our world. Finally, the way to freedom. Let's move to our final point. Paul finishes this passage uh, with the reminder of God's purpose in creation. 
and how we are called to enjoy it. Verse three ends with this declaration. Now, this was hard to kind of break up because it's actually just one long sentence, these five verses. Paul tends to do that, Um, but I'll try to kind of make it flow. Verse three ends with the declaration that God has created marriage and food, here's the verse, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. In those two verses, he says thanksgiving in each verse. Very, very important. If you and I want to live this life of freedom purchased for us by Jesus Christ and the gospel, if we want to live holy and obedient lives and yet be free of legalism, Right? And free of creating these additional rules and regulations, there's two things we must remember if we want to follow God's way to Christian freedom. First, we must understand the doctrine of creation. Okay? We have to understand the doctrine of creation. And Paul tells us everything created by God is good. Okay? This is contrary to the Greek philosophers and even contrary to Buddhism, who believes that the material world is evil that the material world is something we want to be rescued out of, that we need to get out of this physical and material world because it's full of suffering, full of pain. And the Greeks said, no, 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 the material things are bad, the spiritual things are good. They created this dichotomy, right? They're against each other. You know what the Bible says? It's good. The Christian worldview rejects this Greek worldview, this Buddhist worldview, because God, is the creator of heaven and earth. And if you go back and you read Genesis, Genesis chapter one, after each day, God looks at his creation and he says it is good. After every moment of creation, after every day, after every act of creation, he looks upon it and he declares that it was good. And here Paul affirms that truth for us. Okay, If you and I want to live free lives in this world and enjoy the common grace gifts that God has given us in creation, we have to recognize the good, okay? The things God has created are good, okay? They are not against you, okay? We are not against creation, okay? God has created all these things to be good. The second thing we must remember is that the way to freedom for us is thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving. The proper way for us to respond to the goodness of creation, okay, is to receive it and enjoy it with gratitude, okay? Not to reject it as unclean, okay? That's what these false teachers are doing. They're saying, oh, these foods, right? These objects, these activities, these are unclean. Stay completely away from them. We don't want to reject God's creation as unclean. On the other side, we don't want to worship creation as an idol, which too many of us do in this world. We worship created things as idols. And instead, God calls us to not worship the created thing, to worship the creator. We always have to remember that. We worship the creator and we thank him for how amazing steak tastes and ribs tastes and how wonderful intimacy is with your spouse and how beautiful procreate, all of those things. We thank God for them. And Paul is saying that thanksgiving should be natural for us. Why? Why is it natural for the Christian, for those of us who believe, right? Those of us who have received the truth? Because when you understand the gospel, 
you understand unmerited favor. When you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't live your life trying to pay him back. Why? Because you cannot. When you understand that the gospel is a free grace gift from God, you do not buy into the ideas that you can now do works to level up and earn more favor because God has already given all of his approval, all of his favor, all of his blessing upon you because of Jesus Christ. And he has given you his righteousness. He has given you his reward and his prize. There's nothing we could and have done to earn our salvation. And so we, by nature as Christians, should be grateful people. Gratitude should always just flow from our lips. For that's the heart of our response to the gospel. Finally, in verse 5, there's this really puzzling little phrase from Paul. And I want to help you through it. He tells us that marriage and food are made holy by the word of God and prayer. Okay? And to make holy is to sanctify something. And he's saying that the word of God sanctifies marriage. The word of God sanctifies food. And your prayers do as well. And we're kind of like, how does that happen? What does that mean? The answer is this. Okay. God blesses marriage in his word. He's affirmed it. Does that make sense? Marriage isn't something we've created. It's not just a social construct. God, in his word, has blessed your marriage. And so it's not you doing something just because you want to do it. You're obeying God. You're delighting in God. You're receiving a gift that God has given you. He has blessed it. He has made it holy. And you can enjoy that. Okay. And how do we make something holy? How do we make marriage holy? How do we make food holy? And he blessed food as well when he said, it's all good. It's all clean. Rise, kill, and eat. I'm giving you the green light. I'm giving you the blessing. I'm giving you the okay. God has sanctified these things. Well, we bless the food literally when we pray for it, okay? When you pray for your meals, do you think about that? I realize I, I haven't. I just say, you know, like, thank you. I pray for myself. And I pray like, oh, that like I would be ready to eat the food. And I pray because like that's what I do. And I'm a pastor. Like even just yesterday, we had a barbecue. Obviously, I'm supposed to pray for the food. Um, and, but I'm just used to kind of praying for everyone at the meal, right? You know what Paul's telling us today? We're called to bless the food, to set it apart and make it holy. How do you do that? By thanking God for this food. As you eat this meal, you realize that God is your provider and he has given this to you as your daily bread for your sustenance, for your strength, for your life. And every time we pray for our meal, we should have pause to give genuine thanks and gratitude to God as the giver of all of these gifts. And so that's why we are called to pray and Bless the meal. And so next time you pray for your, you know, even today, for your lunch, would you really think about that? That God is giving you the opportunity to make that burrito holy, right? <laughs> that you can make those tacos at the taco truck this afternoon. Set apart. How? You pray for it and you enjoy it and you eat it to the glory of God. Thank you, Lord, for carne asada, right? And cilantro and onion. It's just, it seems kind of silly, but it's so biblical. And it's how we enjoy creation, okay? 
And, and I think we need to kind of relearn that posture because we're just so numb to being grateful for even the food in our lives. We're just used to it, right? Swipe your credit card, right? Sign a name or whatever it might be, and you just eat it. You're going to pay for it from your bill or whatever. We just act like it's all, all ours, right? Our choice, right? Our decisions, our payments, our food, our meal. And God is just asking us, hey, would you reposition that? And would you eat to his glory? Would you eat with gratitude and thanksgiving? Would you eat out of freedom that he has given us? Church, let's be a grateful church. Let's celebrate and enjoy the gospel by enjoying all of creation according to God's will and his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for just your grace and presence in our lives. We thank you that you have created such a world full of beauty and bounty. You've created a world full of texture and flavor and color. You've given us so many experiences that we might enjoy this life. Father, would you forgive us for living in this world, for enjoying our lives without any mindfulness of you? Would you forgive us for failing to give you the glory and honor and thanks that you alone deserve. Just as we are grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ and your grace, make us a grateful people for every gift and everything that we have in our lives. So I do pray this for our families. Would our households be full of grace and thanksgiving? I pray this for our singles and our students they are building their careers and establishing um, just their lives. Lord Jesus, would you be the rock on which they stand? And would you teach them what it means to truly live a Christ-centered, praise-filled life to your glory? Lastly, we pray that you would protect the church. Would you keep us pure in doctrine and faithful to your word? We pray for anyone who is being misled by heresy. Father, would you convict them? Would your light break into that darkness and show them your truth and grace? We pray this not only for all nations, church, but for the entire world.